0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, we're going to actually we're going to go ahead and get started because I've got right at time to start. So let's pray. And then we'll dive right in. So, Father, thank you for another week to gather together to look at your word. I thank you for the Old Testament and just, Lord, what we're learning about your grace, about your sovereignty, about your plan, about all the ways that you've proved yourself strong in um, those people in the Old Testament. Lord, we know that you're the same God. You're the same Jesus yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so we thank you for revealing yourself all the way back then and also being um, our Savior today. and So help us learn tonight, have fun doing it, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. And no, it's not Sunday morning, but open your Bible to the book of Acts. I'm going to tie in something that we talked about Sunday morning before we talk about tonight because I want to do a little bit of review and just show you um, the, the ground that we've covered over these past few weeks. So turn to Acts chapter 13. Uh, this is kind of what we looked at on Sunday mornings, but look at verse, um, we'll start in verse 13. And um, I didn't have a lot of time to spend on this Sunday because there were so many things to talk about, but I just want to show you what Paul does on his first missionary journey when he goes into a Jewish synagogue and then just kind of rehearse what he says to what we've learned so far. So um, Acts 13, starting in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, okay, here's his sermon. It's in quotations. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, Chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Okay, stop right there. What book of the Bible is that? Genesis. Okay. He chose who? Israel. That, it's all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He made them great during their stay in the land of Egypt. How does Genesis end? With Joseph, they're populating the nation of Israel. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. What book is that? Exodus, he led them out of the Red Sea. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. We didn't look at those books, but that's Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Okay, we looked a little bit at Deuteronomy. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. What book of the Bible is that? Joshua. Joshua. And all this took place about 45, or all this took about 45 years. And after that, he gave them judges. did I say four hundred fifty? What did I say? Forty-five. 45. Oh yeah, four hundred fifty. Yeah, it was really fast. <laughs> Paul's giving a really short sermon here. Um, four hundred and fifty years, and after that he gave them judges. What did we look at two weeks ago? Judges. What did we look at last week? Ruth took place during the time of judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Okay. So we're in a time of transition tonight because we're moving into Samuel, Saul and David Okay, so Paul gives a mini-sermon there, and what does he cover? Basically, Genesis through Samuel all the way, you know, in a short amount of time. Now, we've spent many weeks looking at this and and dived into all the stuff about that. But it's interesting how Paul used the Old Testament stories that the Jews would have known as a starting point to, to move them to Jesus. Now, this coming Sunday, we're going to see a totally different take that Paul does. Paul's talking to pagan Gentiles that don't know anything about the Bible, and so his tactic's going to be different. He's not going to start with the Old Testament, per se. He's going to start all the way back to creation. So just a little different thing. So we are going to look at Samuel tonight. So let us look at some introductory issues. It's a book of three main characters, Samuel, is there, does everybody have a sheet? We've got more. If you guys didn't get a sheet, we can pass some of these back. Does everybody have one? Okay. I'll just leave them maybe at the back of the Okay. Samuel, Saul, and David, three main characters. It's a book of transitions, okay? It's transitioning from a theocracy. What's a theocracy? Where God is the king to a monarchy, where God sets up a human to be on the throne to lead. So it's a transition, the author remains anonymous. We're not really sure who wrote the book of Samuel. Now, when I say Samuel, our Bible has 1st and 2nd Samuel. Originally, it was one book. Okay? Due to the length, it was probably divided into two books during the compiling of the Septuagint. You guys remember the Septuagint, the LXX? What is the Septuagint? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was compiled by 70 people years you know a few years before uh, the time that, that the Christ and the Apostles came on the scene, so no book it was probably compiled during the exile. No book has been the object of such intense literary analysis that sounds real high and lofty right Liter- and we 'll talk why when I say literary analysis what am i what am I talking about literature okay when we talk about literature let 's just take um, Let's take the scripture part away for just a moment, not that we're denying the authority or inerrancy of scripture, but when you just look at literature, what, what are we talking about? Okay, but when we talk about literary analysis, what are we talking about here? The storytelling. the storytelling, the characterization, the plot, the themes. Um, this, is gonna, this is a great piece of literature, okay? Just from its, just from its standpoint of characterization, plot, um, motifs themes a lot like we looked at Ruth last week okay so let's look at some introductory issues continuing it was mostly prose what's prose narrative with two main poetic sections the, the first poetic section is Hannah's prayer and David's song so you've got some some po- poetry or, or psalm type stuff now Hannah's we call it Hannah's Magnificat okay In Luke, what do we have? We have Mary's Magnificat. Here we have Hannah's Magnificat. It becomes the backdrop for themes that occur throughout the entire book, especially of the kingship fulfilled with David. So let's just open our Bibles to Samuel, 1 Samuel. Remember, it was one big book, but 1 Samuel. And you guys know the story of the birth of Samuel. Um. Hannah is barren, and in that day it was a big deal to be barren because your whole identity as a woman was tied to your ability to procreate, um, to, to have children, so that you could carry on the family name. And so let's just pick up um, at verse nine of chapter one. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, now remember where's Shiloh now? Shiloh is the central place where the tabernacle is at. It's it's not in Jerusalem yet. It's not moving around anymore. It's, it's been centralized in Shiloh. So that's where basically the tabernacle is, um, which is where the priest would be, Eli. So um, after they had drunk, after they eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So this is a woman that's really distressed, right? She's, she's troubled. She's pouring out her heart to God. She's kind of praying silently, but her lips are moving. And so Eli comes by and thinks she's drunk. And there's something you need to understand about Eli. Who is Eli? He's the high priest. He's not altogether there, okay? Um, he tends to be a little blind and, and a little confusing. And, and you're wondering, how is this guy... A priest what book just preceded this man i know ruth was there but what was the book that kind of links judges, judges. what do we remember about judges everyone did what was right in his own eyes there was no king in israel so if everybody's doing right in their own eyes who becomes the high priest eli and you're probably wondering well how did this dude get to be the high priest well, maybe it was kind of spurious how he got to be there because we're going to find out later on. He's not, the, he's not the wisest guy. So anyway, she prays to the Lord. The Lord grants her a son. She says, I'm going to devote this Lord to you, Lord. I'm going to give him to you. I'm going to offer him up to you because you've given me this, this, um, this son. So basically, um, she goes and she dedicates Samuel to the Lord. And um, look down at verse um, 27. For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Okay? And then you have Hannah's prayer, Hannah's Magnificat in chapter 2, where it's a lot like the song of Mary in Luke, where Mary was visited by the angel, and she worships God for being... um, Just She ponders these things in her heart, and so... Hannah does the same thing but it's interesting if you look at verse 10 there's there's an interesting thing that's said there in what Hannah does look at what she says in verse 10 the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them he will thunder in heaven the Lord will judge the ends of the earth he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed what's the problem here There is no king yet. But she's praying that the Lord will give strength to the king, even though there's no king in Israel yet. There's not even a thought of a king yet in Israel. So her song really is kind of a foreshadowing that the beginning of Samuel, there's this foreshadowing that kingship is on the rise. And she prays that the Lord will give strength to his king, his anointed. So the question becomes... Who is the truly anointed king that God ordains? Who's the true king? Now, ultimately it's it's Jesus, but in the context of this story, there's the tension between is it Saul or is it David? So she kind of brings this up in her prayer as kind of a tension as we first start out. Okay? Now, let's talk a little bit let's, let's do a little bit of more introductory issues here. Um David's an interesting thing about this is David's political life is intertwined with his personal life. Now, do we learn a lot about Moses' personal life? Not a lot. Do we learn a lot about Joshua's personal life? No, not a lot. David's personal life is talked about a lot. So he becomes a character that focuses on his political life, his kingship, his leaders, his military, but also how he deals with his wives, how he deals with his children. And so there's that whole issue of personal life. He becomes a great military leader, a king, it should be a king, and founds, founds, it's not very good grammatically, founds a dynasty. You know what I mean. Okay. (laughs) Yet, we learn of his behavior as a father and a husband. So not only do we see him as a king, but we see him as a father and a husband. All aspects of David's life are in full color. Now, sexuality is a major theme throughout. You've got Bathsheba, we know what that story is. We've got Um, The rape of the half-sister. We got the competition for Abishag. We got the seizure of David's concubines. And we got the childlessness of Saul's daughter, Michael. One key word throughout both Samuel and Kings, and this is a key word, is the word sword. And let me just ask you a question. Why would sword be a key term? (laughs) Warfare. Warfare. Okay. What does a sword represent? warfare, battle, okay? So there's this idea that there's going to be battle throughout. There's going to be a lot of battles, okay? There's going to be military battles where people are actually going to be killing each other with swords. There's also going to be some spiritual battles in the fact that we see these people doing some very ungodly things. As a matter of fact, when David... um, you know, commits the the adultery with Bathsheba, has Uriah killed, Nathan the prophet comes to him, what does he say to him? Your sins are forgiven, but the sword will never leave your house. The consequence of your sin is the sword. So sword is a key theme throughout both of these, and it's a larger theme for the fact that this nation, remember guys, what was the ideal? And we look back at the book of Deuteronomy, the ideal was one nation, under God, indivisible, with Israel, united, one, all 12 tribes united together with, with God as their king. If sword becomes the theme, what is this going to be a foreshadowing of? Things are starting to disintegrate. Things are starting to break apart. Things are starting to move towards, okay, we're not going to be unified we're eventually going to split into civil war, and eventually we're going to be kicked out of the land into exile. And so this whole sword theme is, is playing on two, three levels, really. The literally battles that go on where people are cutting each other up. The literal spiritual battles that are going on when people do things that are ungodly. And then the big, big picture that it's a metaphor for what's happening to the nation of Israel that they're about ready to be cut into pieces, literally, um, as, as the nation unfolds. Okay. Many scholars have argued that the Masoretic text of Samuel, though mostly intact, is among the least well-transmitted of the books of the Bible. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on textual criticism here, but one of the things that you'll notice when you read through Samuel is you have a lot of footnotes. I mean, just go look at it right now. Go, just go turn to, if your Bible has footnotes, just look almost every page, you're going to have a footnote. And what that means is, is that um, it was a hard book to translate. And so there's some things that there's footnotes about, well, how do, we, how do we really translate this, okay? It doesn't affect the doctrine. It doesn't th- affect the theology. What it does is, now the Masoretic text, I'm not going to give you a big, the, the Masoretes were a group of people that um, basically took the Old Testament in the original Hebrew. They put the vowel points in. This was about, oh, probably around 900 to 1100 A.D. is when, they took the Old Testament writings and put them all together in the type of Bible that, we, that was used from about 1,100. Okay. What happened in 1948 in the Qumran desert? Anybody remember? A little boy goes into a cave, throws a rock at a pot. The pot breaks. They discover the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948. Now, here's a major thing that happens with the Dead Sea Scrolls because here's what's going on. In textual criticism... I'm just gonna. This may be a little bit. This may be a little bit technical, but I think it's helpful. This is kind of stuff you talk about in seminary. We may not talk about this in a. Textual criticism basically has three rules when you look at texts. Okay, the first rule is the oldest. The oldest um, dating is probably the most accurate. The shortest is probably the most accurate, and the hardest to understand is probably the most accurate. You can understand oldest dating, right, because it goes back to the original source. The shortest means that if it's longer, maybe a scribe came along later on and tried to add some things to make sense. The hardest to understand, thing, same thing, a scribe may have come along to fill in the, the, the gaps. Okay, And so you've got a document here. Let's say you've got a scroll of Isaiah. That was found. Let's say you've been you've been operating off the scroll of Isaiah, and and, and, and you know you've dated it from let's say 1000 A.D. during the Masoretic time. The Masoretic time. It's called the Masoretic text. Okay. You take that document of Isaiah. Okay. You got 1948. You got the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you look at the you look at because the, they found Isaiah. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, you compare these two documents, okay? Here's the great find that makes the Dead Sea Scrolls so important. Was there any difference between these two documents? No. Which makes it say that, which is the oldest of these two? This is the oldest, the Dead Sea Scroll. So it shows you that the furthest oldest manuscript in all those years of transmitting and translating and, and, and copying, the, the closest one we have to um, even today, there was no difference. So the transmission of the text was not lost over years. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It really So the Dead Sea Scrolls is a huge find because it adds to the inerrancy, the authority, the reliability of the scriptures. Okay? Three fragmentary manuscripts were found in K4. Um, two largely agreed with the Masoretic text. Um, The third text, only bits and scraps not eaten by worms, contained a text resembling the one used by the LXX. So, either way you look at it, the three texts that they have all correspond to what was used either during the days of Jesus and even up to modern day. Okay? So that's really important. If somebody asks, well, how can we, uh, you know, why is the Bible, you know, how can you understand the reliability of the Bible? Have you ever asked that question? It's been translated all these years. How do you know something's not got lost in translation? Or How do you know that what we're reading today is not just a product of man? Here's my best answer. My best answer is God and his sovereignty has preserved the process through his providence and we just got to trust that. Because even the scientific evidence shows that it's happened. That the De- and, and, and who knows, they may even find something on an archaeological dig that'll give more evidence to that. But the Dead Sea Scrolls was an important thing because it, it authenticated the authority and reliability of those ancient scriptures compared to the most recent ones. Does that, does that all make sense? That was maybe a little bit more technical than what we wanted to talk about, but I thought I'd throw it out there, okay? Now you can say, I know what a Masoretic text is versus the Dead Sea Scrolls and act like you're smart. And people will be like, hmm, they know what they're talking about. And if they ask you more questions, like, oh, I have to, I'll have to look that one up. So structure, here's the structure. The Lord raises up Samuel. The Lord gives Israel a king. The Lord gives Israel David. David reigns as king. Aside, illustration of David's relationship with the Lord towards the end of his life. Okay, That's the major structure of these two books. Samuel, Saul, David. The three main characters. Now here's the characterization piece. With unmatched skill... The author, who remains anonymous, so we don't know who he is, succeeds in creating three major characters who not not only become real, yet they become larger than life. We find out the characterization, especially when you read the original language, these three men emerge as just great characters. Now, we thought we saw great characters last week with Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. I mean, that was a great little short story. This is like a full-fledged character study on these three men, more so than probably the other books. Moses is a good character study, but a lot of what Moses does is he just, you know, deals with the people and gives the law and and leads them. You've got all these side stories going on about father, you know, wife, all the relationships that are going on. So larger than life. Okay. Scholars have argued that not since Moses has there been a more important figure in Israel's history up to this point. And we would probably agree with that, right? Maybe Joshua, but... Samuel actually emerges as an interesting character. Is he a judge or is he a prophet? Yes. Is he a priest? Yes. Is he a king? No. He is really Israel's last judge. Now, we thought Samson was the last judge, but we find out that he emerges almost as like a judge, priest, prophet type character. It's really hard to define what he really is because it's really this transition time into moving into the monarchy. And there's some interesting comparisons when you look at the comparisons between Samuel and Moses. Let's look at this. Both were raised in environments outside their own homes. Where was Moses raised? In Pharaoh's court. Where was Samuel raised? In the tabernacle as a little kid. Okay? Both received their initial revelations from God in solitude with the presence of a burning object. Moses was before the burning bush. Samuel was in the tabernacle with the burning, the candle burning. And what did God say? Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, here I am, here I am. Both were called prophets and both were called faithful. Both personally killed one oppressor of the Israelites and went into self-imposed exile. Both performed priestly duties, yet neither was ever called a priest. At the Lord's direction, both anointed individuals who led Israel to fight and defeat the Canaanites. Who did Moses anoint? Joshua. Who did Samuel anoint? David. Interesting comparisons. Okay, this is the interesting thing. I, this is the part I love about Samuel is you've got, okay, I was a film and video major in, in, in college. And so sometimes watching movies is really fun for me because there's this thing called, um, well, let me give you the perfect example, okay? And pardon, pardon if you're not a Star Wars fan, but that's the best thing I can relate to. Empire Strikes Back. Okay, the second of the real movies. Okay, not the first three movies, but okay. In *Empire Strikes Back*, how many stories do you have going on? You got two stories. Some of you are like, I have no idea. You got two (laughs) stories going on. Okay, you got Luke going to the Dagobah system to deal with Yoda, and you got that whole story going on. And then you've got Han and Leia and 3PO and and Chewbacca going to Cloud City and going through the asteroid thing and and trying to get off. So you have these two stories going side by side. Now, George Lucas could have done one thing, right? He could have done 45 minutes of the Luke story, and he could have done 45 minutes of the other story, and then that would have been the movie. What would be a better way to tell that story? To switch back and forth between the two stories to keep the tension moving, right? Right? Good storytelling has these things pitted back and forth against each other. So what you have here is it's it's, it's brilliant the way the writer does this. You've got Hannah and Samuel, this pious, wonderful mother who gives her son up. You've got Samuel, this godly little boy. Okay, so you've got godly mother, godly boy, Samuel and Hannah. Okay, so let's just write them up here. Hannah, she's the godly mom, and Samuel's the godly son. And juxtaposed right next to them, you have Eli, who's kind of the clueless dad, and his sons, who are very wicked. And what the author's going to do is he's going to split screen, not really split screen, but he's going to flip back between these two stories, and he's going to show just the huge juxtaposition between the the, the godliness of this family versus the wickedness of this family. Back and forth against each other. Okay, so I'm going to show you how that works. Okay, you guys ready to see how that works? Let's let's look. So let's go into Samuel, and let's look. We, we've already looked at chapter one, right? And we saw how Hannah is this godly woman that cries out to the Lord, and she pours her heart out. and She says, "Lord, I'm going to I'm going to offer my son up to you. I give him to you. They they offer sacrifices, um, and then she has that prayer. Um, and then um, if you end if chapter two, verse eleven, notice how it ends. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Okay, what's the last thing in that chapter, that we, or that last verse there that we see about Samuel? He's ministering to the Lord. He's serving the Lord. He's worshiping the Lord. Now look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men's, men. They did not know the Lord. Do you see the, do you see the juxtaposition there? Godly son wicked son right next to each other and there's no accident that he does that on purpose to show the distinction between these two families now let's find out why these sons are worthless these worthless men Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it in the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Okay, this whole thing you kind of understand, but look at verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. Do you see the destruction position there? They treated the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord in an ephod. Now, what was an ephod? It was a priestly garment. So little boy's wearing the priestly garment that was reserved for the high priest, you know, the, the priestly garment. And so you've got this juxtaposition and it's kind of cool how, how what happened here. Verse 19, his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Isn't that sweet? The mom would bring him, you know, she'd bring him clothes every year that she made because remember she gave him up and she could not raise him But that was her opportunity to see him is when they went and did sacrifices. And her way of showing love to him was, I'm going to make him an ephod. (laughs) So, sweet mom. Okay, verse 20. Then Eli would bless Elkanah's wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord so they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. How many times is it saying here Samuel was what? In the presence of the Lord, ministering before the Lord, serving the Lord. All right, next verse. Now, Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, what's going on here? Okay, this is the tabernacle. They're having sexual relationships with prostitutes in front of the tabernacle, the high priests. Okay, and they're also stealing from the people when they bring their food. Okay. Okay. So the two, this is the top dog, Eli. Okay, so, so Hannah, beautiful, pious, loving, giving mother, sons ministering before the Lord, serving the Lord, um, being in the presence of the Lord. Blind, clueless dad allows his sons to um, basically steal from the people and have sexual immorality right pretty much in the tabernacle. Okay, that's pretty wicked. Now, let's keep going. Verse 23. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of all your evil dealings from all the people. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about fatherhood for just a moment. What are you guys doing? I'm hearing about this from everybody. Is he a hands-on father or is he kind of a blind father? How is he hearing about his son's activity? From other people, people. (laughs) okay? Now, I know they're grown sons, but still, he's the high priest. And then he says, No, my sons, it's no, good, it's, it's no good report that I hear about the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now that's a scary, that's a scary sentence. Look at verse 26. Now the young man saying they will continue to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. You see the jumping back and forth there? Wicked boys. Samuel ministering growing, serving, wicked sons, godly son, wicked sons, godly son. I mean, there's no, it's no accident that the writer does it this way. Now, remember Hebrew storytelling. What what, what was this meant to be? Was this meant to be read, first of all, or spoken or or taught? Oral. So think about the storytelling, you know, keeping them on the edge of their seat. It's it's, it's this great storytelling. That's why we're talking about literature here the literary masterpiece of weaving these two stories together. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting. Verse 27, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, We don't know who this man of God is, but it's interesting that God had to send him to Eli, because what should Eli have been? He should have been the man of God. Yeah, the high priest. Thus the Lord said, "Did Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of everything of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me, shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will, be not, so there will not be an old man in your house. Okay, he goes on and, and talks about this. One thing that you also find out, too, um, if you go back, I'm trying to remember. Oh, yeah, we're, we're going to get to that later on. Let's look at chapter 3. Um, chapter 3, what's this in-class handout? You don't have an in-class handout. That must have been for my actual class when I taught this. Four major parts to the call. Let's talk about the call narrative, okay? Remember in Moses, Exodus chapter 3, it was a call narrative. He was out by the burning bush. God called to him out of the burning bush, said, Moses, Moses, here I am. You know, I want you to go down and free my people from Egypt. I don't want to. I can't speak and nobody's going to listen to me. Go, okay? So you have the call when God calls someone to ministry. Okay, here's Samuel's call. Now, how old was Moses when God called him? 80. 80 years old. How old is God when He calls Samuel here? I mean, how old was God? How old's God? It's like a little, like a like a four year old. How old's God? Well, he's real old. Um, how old was Samuel when he was called of God? We really don't know, but he's still a little boy that his mom has to come bring him. You know, the little ephod. Okay, the, so, so, so look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the young man, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord under Eli. Again, how many times do we hear this phrase over and over again? He's ministering. He's serving. He's worshiping the Lord. And the words of the Lord were rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Very important. The word of the Lord was What? Why was the word of the Lord rare in those days? What days are they talking about? This is the very end of the judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Meaning, it's not that God's word disappeared. It was that what? God's word was not preached. God's word was not taught. God's word was not obeyed. It was rare. And it says, in those days, there were no frequent visions. Okay, we're going to understand the vision here in just a moment. Look at the next sentence. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. Now, remember when I talked about blindness earlier in Genesis? If someone is physically blind, oftentimes in Hebrew narrative, it signifies that they're what? Spiritually blind. Do you think Eli's spiritually blind? He's spiritually blind to his sons, okay? he, he, he He's physically blind. He can't see, but really that detail there is not to let us know that he needs glasses. The detail there is to let us know that he needs spiritual glasses to see what's going on. Okay. And this is also another interesting little tidbit. Look at verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. There's some interesting things here. Where's Samuel sleeping? In the Holy of Holies. Okay. Okay which nobody was allowed to go in because you would be killed if you weren't right with God. A little boy sleeping. Where's he sleeping? He's curling up right next to the Ark of the Covenant. And what does it say there? The lamp had not gone out yet. Now, remember, what's in the center of, what's in the temple? We, at the tabernacle. We, we showed those diagrams a few weeks ago. There was what? A burning candle. Again, metaphor. Okay, it was getting dark. The, light, the night light's still on. It hasn't been turned off, so the little boy can go to sleep. But what is he really saying? The lamp had not yet gone out. I.E., metaphor, in the dark days of the judges, where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, when it's a dark age, there's hope. Because the lamp has not gone out yet. God's about to do something new. The word, it's rare. Vision's rare. But here you've got this little boy, who the buildup has been he's ministering, he's serving, he's obeying God. The lamp has not gone out yet. God's about to do something new. The light's about to return to Israel through this little boy. Okay? So let's find out the call. I just think it's interesting that he's laying there next to the Ark of the Covenant. Um, verse 4, Then the Lord, the Lord called Samuel and, said, and he said, Here am I. And, and he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He said, I did not call you, go back and lay down. <laughs> he's blind, remember? I'm sleeping. I'm an old man. So he went back and lay down. And the Lord called Samuel and said, And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now I find that to be a little bit interesting because even though God had not fully revealed himself, he's still obeying what he knows. He's still ministering. And so that shows me that one thing, little kids can be saved, right? They may not have all of the knowledge about who God is, but when God chooses to regenerate a young child's heart and, and convert them, their, their, their light bulb goes on and they, they know the gospel. But it shows me that kids can be sensitive to the working of God in their lives. And so here you have a little boy. Didn't know the Lord yet, but he was still in a position for God to, to move in. Okay, here's, here's verse 8. The Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak. For your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Ooh, what's going to (laughs) happen? On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Wow. Wow. What's the first thing that God tells this little boy? Speak, I'm listening, God. I'm a little kid. I'm sleeping in the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the temple. I want to know what your will is. Okay, Samuel, go tell Eli, your master, that he's toast and his family's toast. Okay. And he can't fix it. And I can't, I can't, yeah, it cannot be atoned for. That, all right, let me just give you the scariest verse in all the Bible, besides the one we just looked at. Um, <laughs> verse 14. I swear, this is God's, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That includes Jesus on the cross. So you have an example of one family who did not receive the blessing of the atonement because of their sin. That's scary, a scary verse. Now, we don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but Samuel has to go to Eli and give him this news. Now, think about how Samuel would feel you're a little boy And the first thing you have to go to your master is to to give him a a word of judgment. But let's keep going. Samuel lay until morning. (laughs) He's probably thinking, I got to think about this, sleep on this. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here am I. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more if you hide anything from me, all that he has told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. You see the dichotomy even how it ends. Judgment on the house of Eli. And Eli accepts it. He knows that if God's spoken, there's no way it can be undone. He accepts it. But then the last word is Samuel what? Grew. The Lord was with him, and none of his words fell to the ground. Now, what does that mean? It means that God is setting him up to be a prophet who will speak the word of God, and it's not going to fall on deaf ears. It's not going to be like the judges that came before, or the people that came before. This man's going to be called of God, equipped of God. He's going to speak God's word. God's going to anoint his life to be a powerful prophet, this little boy. Okay? So there's kind of that, that, that just composition. Um, and so here's the, um, whole, the whole issue of the call. Um, God calls people to special ministry. There are some people, like myself, for example, that are called to a special ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that not every Christian is called. Okay? The Bible says we are effectually called by the Holy Spirit. And so when you become a Christian, every one of you is a called one. That's what the church means, the called out ones. So every one of us have the call of God in our lives. Every one of you should see your life as a calling in whatever vocation you have. So I hear a lot of people say, well, we separate the sacred from the secular. Do you understand what I mean by that? Let me use another word here. If I write this word, this is not in your notes, but compartmentalization. I don't know. Compartmentalization, compartmentalizing. What does a compartmentalizing mean? I've got my church life, I've got my work life, I've got my home life, I've got my sports life, and so you've got all these buckets that you put your life in, and so you may act one way at work, a different way at church, and so you're not an integrated whole. And so when we're called to be Christians, we're called to have an integrated. What, what, what does integrated mean? Everything's together. Everything's together. What's an integer? Those of you that are math people. It's a whole number. Do you know what word comes from integrated integer? Integrity. So a person of integrity means that your whole life is whole. It's not compartmentalized. And so every Christian, you're called to be a Christian, but also you are called to live to the glory of God wherever God's placed you. So if you're a school teacher, that's your calling. And you should accept that as God can use you to make an impact. If you're a stay-at-home mom, that's your calling. If you're an oil, work on the oil fields, that's your calling. God can use your business, your work, your life uh, to have a calling on you, okay? That doesn't mean that you're going to go into professional ministry where you're going to get paid to be like a missionary or pastor, okay? But every single one of you called. But on top of that, there's the special call where God calls out people specially for pastoral ministry, for... um, the work of the ministry. Um, I've received that call. Can't quite explain why, how it works. All I know is that when I was about 16 years old, I went to a mission trip in Telluride, Colorado. We were doing a back a vacation Bible school with a young church planner named Ron Clement, and his family just moved to. Um, tell your ride and um we were in this church in montrose which was the the home church where we went out there and so we were in the church in montrose it was the last night our youth group was gathering and i distinctly felt god not it wasn't an audible voice or anything but i felt god saying i'm setting you apart for pastoral or some type of ministry and i'm like okay my dad's a pastor i don't know if i want to go down that path so i went to my dad and said dad I think God's calling me to ministry. My dad says, you need to be really careful about that, Sean. You don't go into it for the money. You don't go into it for the glory. You don't go into it for the fame. You don't go into it for the money. Believe me. So, And you don't go into it to follow in your dad's footsteps. It's got to be God's call upon your life. And so I shared it with my youth pastor. And my youth pastor said, you know what? If God has called you... We've got to provide opportunities for you to work out God's call on your life. So as a youth, I was able to... I preached on some... This was back when I had Sunday night church in the old you know, Baptist churches. We, I was able to preach a few Sunday night church services. Um, in high school, I was able to actually lead the middle school. Like the youth pastor led the high school. I led the middle school. Um, I had a lot of opportunities. Then I went off to college, and I was at Glorietta where the youth were down there. It was student week where all the college students get together. And I distinctly remember God calling me again saying i 'm strongly calling you to ministry, okay, so I end up going to Baylor University my my freshman year in college um, down in Texas because I grew up in Texas and always wanted to go to Baylor and I went down there to be a, to be a pastor, be a preacher boy. I was there for a semester and I hated it. It was the most miserable three months of my life. I came back, I got involved in the, um, the, the collegiate ministry at the University of Colorado, Colorado springs um, basically that 's where I met Don and kind of shared my call with her, not to the total extent um, of everything. I think I did. I mean, we we talked a lot about that. And so um, we were, I had gotten a degree, this is maybe more information than you need to know, but I'm going to keep going, okay, because who's going to stop me? I mean, if you want (laughs) to stop me, if you want to stop me, you can. But um, um, I got my degree in film and video production, okay? And I really wanted to go to Hollywood and be a filmmaker, and I just really struggled because I was working retail at the time, And it was like this dead-end retail job, and it was just kind of like I was miserable. I knew in my heart that I wasn't really supposed to go make movies, but that was what my degree was in. And so, um, you know, Don and I made a lot of unwise choices early in our marriage financially. Um, We almost thought about going down to Fort Worth to to Southwestern Seminary, and that didn't quite work out. And so um, I was kind of miserable for two years, and Don never said a word to me. I mean she prayed for me behind the scenes and then my dad was a pastor. So we're, we're at church one Sunday and we had a, you know, we were driving to church. I led worship and uh, I don't even remember what my dad's sermon was on, but it was something about being obedient to God. And so I get back in the car and I'm um, driving and I just start bawling and I'm like, you know, just break down the car and I look at Donna and so I've been so disobedient, I'm supposed to go in the ministry, and I'm supposed to surrender to the Lord and, and, and I, I don't know why I'm doing this and then she looks at me, and she goes, I know. I've just been waiting for you you know, I've just been patiently waiting for God to and so anyway, about a month later, my dad calls up and says, You know what? First Baptist Church of Black Forest has an opening for a youth pastor. Have you considered, you know, revisiting your call? And I'm like, Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, Dad, I think God I think this may be the open door. So, needless to say, two months later I went on staff at First Baptist Church Black Forest. Guess who the pastor was? It was Ron Clement, the same guy that was the pastor of the church plant that we went to help back when I was called to ministry when I was first called. And he mentored me, and um, he um, you know, grew me up in the ministry, and then that's, that was kind of my call to ministry. So God has a special call on people where he sets them apart for pastoral ministry. That may be more information than what you need to know, but that's what's happening here to, um, to Samuel. Not every Israelite got the privilege of speaking the word of God. It doesn't mean that every Israelite is not important. It doesn't mean that every Israelite lives for the glory of God. It doesn't mean that every Israelite um, you know, did things to, 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 to obey God. It just meant that Samuel had a specific call in his life. God doesn't call everyone to a prophetic ministry. It's the same thing we're talking about. God calls at different times. As children, when was Jeremiah called? In his mother's womb before he was born. When we get to Isaiah, he had the same call narrative. Remember anything about Isaiah? Burning object, God speaking, Here am I. Moses, burning object, God speaking, here am I. Samuel, burning object, God speaking, here am I. God calls people to ministries that we may that may or may not succeed in the way we want them to. We don't have charge. We don't have a charge over that that, that God's in control of that. Okay, let's talk about Saul. All right, this is where it gets kind of depressing. Chapter 9. I'm not going to go through every story because if we go through every story, we'll be here. You know, we're, we're, we may not get through with this tonight. We, we may not. We may just get through First Samuel. But let's look at Saul. Um, Saul, chapter nine. I mean, Samuel, First Samuel, chapter nine, verse one. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. I'm going to open this. Is that okay? Just to get some. You want to open that back up there, Heather? Yeah, it's a little. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bichorath, son of Afia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome man, a young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, for his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. Okay, Benjamin. What did I tell you about Benjamin back when we studied Joshua and Judges? They were the tribe at the end of Joshua that started to create some problems for the rest of the tribes. They were the ones that were, you know, um, marrying, intermarrying. They were were committing treason against the other tribes. So so Benjamin is probably the most spiritually degraded tribe. So if you're listening to this for the first time, oral tradition, and the storyteller says, Saul from the tribe of, and you're thinking, okay, it's got to be Judah. It's got to be Judah. Benjamin, you're thinking, here comes the black hat. Dun, 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 like the you know Imperial March in Star Wars you know dun, 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 dun. okay anyway enough of the Star Wars stuff okay he's tall now why in the world would the the narrator say he's tall who cares what his height is metaphor non covenant people were tall the Philistines were tall remember in the land and we didn't look at numbers but when they went into the land of Canaan they sent the spies and they said we're like grasshoppers so being tall was basically saying you're not part of the covenant of God. And so the height of, tall, the height of Saul was a way of saying, this guy probably doesn't fit the profile of what Israel needs in a king. The first... Yeah, go ahead, Don. I'm sorry. But weren't they kind of looking for that? Is that why? Because yeah. they always thought themselves as being... Heard. Yeah, and we'll, get, and we'll get to that in just... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's looks. Now, think about this. What are we talking about? When Saul's first introduced, what's described of him? his looks he's handsome he's very very handsome and he's tall he's tall dark and handsome okay and the first Saul narrative depicts him as an incompetent shepherd he can't he the donkeys get loose and he can't row them in that's bad news because in Israel what does a king need to be a shepherd in Hebrew culture if you can't take care of some donkeys you can't take care of people. If you can't take care of a bunch of sheep, you can't take care of people. So if you're not a good shepherd, literally, how are you going to be a shepherd over God's people, the nation? So the very first narrative of Saul depicts him as this bumbling, um, incompetent shepherd that can't, you know, is running after the donkeys as they're escaping. Okay, but he's good looking, and that's all that counts. He's hot, he's good looking. He among all the kings is described as being periodically under the influence of an evil spirit, which is kind of scary. Okay, also, he was a bad father. On two accounts, he tried to murder his own son out of jealousy, out of rage, okay, but he's good looking, and he's tall, but he likes to murder his own son, and he's not a very good shepherd. He's an incompetent military leader. If you go back and look at these things, he can't... Let's just look at a few examples here. Let's look at 1 Samuel fourteen twenty-eight. All the things that you'd want in a king, all the things you'd want in a leader, he does not fit the profile except for the one thing, his looks. Okay, fourteen forty-three. 43. Um, where are we here? Oh, 14, 28, I'm sorry. Okay, then one of his people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father's troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little bit of his honey. If you go back and read the story, basically Saul says, Nobody can eat. And who doesn't hear the story? If you eat, you die. Who, hears the, who doesn't hear the story? Jonathan. Jonathan eats the honey, comes back, and his dad says, Well, you broke the rules, my son. You know, so another, another example here. Okay, I've just if you go back and read those, he's, he's an incompetent military leader. He's kind of a, got an ego issue. Remember the light words we talked about the first night? It's the play on words. Remember Adam and Eve were nude, the serpent was shrewd, the way in the original Hebrew. You've got some light words going on here. Um, the Hebrew word nagad, dagan, nabal, laban. Um, if you go back and look at this um, in 1 Samuel 9, 6, um, This may be a little bit too technical with these words. The main thing I want to show you is that um, na- the word Nabal means fool. And sometimes when it talks about uh, Saul's behavior, that word Nabal shows up a lot as a way to show that he's a fool. that He's a foolish, he's a foolish leader. Um, let's look at the theological messages so far in this story. I want you to go back to Deuteronomy for just a moment because it's very, very important that we revisit Deuteronomy. What was Deuteronomy? It was the constitution of Israel. What was its purpose? It was the nation, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all Israelites, with God as their king. The tribes are unified. It envisioned the perfect society. Now, remember, does the issue of kingship come up before? At this point, has there ever been a king? no has the concept of king come up before yes go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17 look at verse 14 through 20 and I need you to pay pay close attention to this because from here on out when we look at the kings all the kings of Israel we've got to measure them against what Deuteronomy says a king must do okay so Deuteronomy lays out a law concerning Israel's king so in God's mind there is going to be a king but it's going to be under God's terms okay So let's look at it here. Verse 14 of chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, Solomon, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, Solomon, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Okay, it's got to be an Israelite. It's got to be who God appoints. Can't be after wealth, power, horses, wives. Okay, the three main temptations that most kings, most people in power fall under. What is it? Sex, money, and power. King can't be giving into those things. Now, this is very, very important. Look at verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingship, he and his children in Israel. So what's the king supposed to have? His own personal copy of the book of Deuteronomy that he writes in, that the priest to prove that he keeps next to his throne, that he's to read every day so that when he leads the nation, he's leading under the glory of God, obeying God. He's not going to exalt himself over the people. Now, that's very, very important because this standard is shattered when we look at the kings. Like almost none of the kings obey the standard except for a few when there's periods of revival. And so they knew what the standard was for kingship in Israel. God was very explicit here. Also, Let's go back to 1 Samuel because I want to show you how Samuel addresses this. Samuel and De- Because Samuel would have known Deuteronomy, would he have not? Being a little priest with an ephod. next I mean, I could speculate if he wanted to. He could probably, like when he's sleeping in the middle of the night and he's bored, open up the Ark of the Covenant, go in and read the thing. I mean, I'm, the Bible doesn't say he did that, but I'm, I'm sure that he grew up under the teaching of Deuteronomy, of the law. So look at chapter 8, verse 5. Well, let's start back in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people, and all that they say to you, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now if you go down to verse 19, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said no. But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. What do they want to do? We want a king like all the other nations around us. What did Deuteronomy say? When you get into the land and you say, we want a king like all the other nations around us, you may have a king, but only the one that the Lord appoints. And Samuel goes and warns them about what Deuteronomy says. You don't want somebody that has a lot of wealth. Um, You see that there in in, in chapter um, 8, verses 10 through 18, Deuteronomy. uh, And so, so anyway, you've got this idea that what were the people looking at? Why Samuel? I mean, why Saul of all people? Was it his character? Was it his ability to shepherd? Was it was he because he was a good father? No, it's because he was ahead above everybody else and he was a good looking dude. Seriously, that's what the people looked at. They said the most important thing to us is image. If we just had a tall, handsome leader who can make us, because we're, we're always the, 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 the disenfranchised ones, you know, we're, we have to obey God of Israel and, and the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and all these other nations, I mean, they have cool gods and they have cool sacrifices and, and they have cool rituals and they got cool clothing and, and they're so cool and, and we just have to, you know, it's so boring being an Israelite. Let's be like all these other nations around us. Sound familiar? And God says, no, you are my special people, my holy people, my treasured possession. I have formed you for myself. You don't need to be like the other nations because the other nations are idolatrous. You need to worship me. I'll give you a king, but it has to be my king. And they're like, no, it has to be our king, and it's all based upon image. That was their downfall from the very beginning. Saul's, Saul was an incompetent leader, a bad father, and a terrible king, and they chose him because of image. Go ahead, Brent. And not just necessarily pastors, but any person in leadership. I mean, it goes for any leadership. When people base their decisions of leadership on image over character, we talk about presidential elections, you talk about electing, I mean, I'm not trying to be political, but any type of leadership, when it's not based upon God's values, the people pay, don't they? They get what they ask for. And that's basically what God's saying. That's what you guys want? I'm going to give you what you asked for, i.e., that's my passive wrath. I could just say, no, you know, you guys are being disobedient. I'm going to destroy you all. Okay, that's what you want. I'll give you what you asked for. You live with the consequences. And that's what happens. Okay. Deuteronomy also spoke of a day when Israel would have rest from her enemies and God would choose one place for worship. So you're seeing here this whole idea of rest if you go into chapter 12, verse 12, you know, these may be, you know what, that may be the wrong, oh, duh, 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 that may be the wrong verse. That's probably the wrong, I don't know, I think that's a misprint. Um, I don't know if I... I think I put the wrong scriptures in there. I'm not exactly sure what the, or the right scriptures are supposed to be. But anyway, Deuteronomy did also speak of a day where the nation would be at rest. They wouldn't have any more war. They would have one central place of worship and they'd have a king. Okay, so, so here's what we've got here Samuel's not only a transition between theocracy to monarchy, it's a transition from what? Tabernacle to temple. What was the tabernacle? It was the portable tent that moved around with the people kind of went to shiloh here and so you know it's still it's still a a portable tent that you had to that you had to move what was the temple it was a permanent structure that mirrored the 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 tabernacle but it was going to be in a central place eventually jerusalem and so we're starting to move towards a king one place of worship in the promised land okay we haven't had that yet it's been more we're a traveling in the wilderness with the tabernacle we go into land we get the land parceled out we've got Shiloh but we really don't have this one capital city where the king's going to rule from yet and Samuel's a transition to that okay so let's move into David in the time we have we may not be able to finish David one thing we know about David and this has always caused people issues forever he's a man after God's own heart yet he's most famous for committing some egregious sins in the Bible Almost all the Ten Commandments: adultery, murder, lying, theft, dishonoring his parents, coveting. I don't know if he broke the Sabbath, but um, but he's yet he's a man after God's own heart, and we'll talk about that when we get a little bit later down the road. First Samuel thirteen, verse thirteen, chapter thirteen, verse thirteen. <clears throat> And Samuel said to Saul, You have done nabal, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up to Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, okay? Let's go to chapter 16, verse 7. This is where David's anointed. Um, You realize David was anointed as king before he was really king. He was kind of like secretly anointed. Um, And then there was actually really three anointings, um, and we'll talk about that. Um, Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance. He's a good-looking guy. Or on the height of his stature, he's a tall guy. Because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as a man sees; man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So why was David chosen? It was God's choice, but it was because of his heart. He had—he was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't tall. Now he may not. He, some people say David was pretty good looking. He was ruddy, which means he may have had. Maybe have had red hair. I don't know. But he wasn't as handsome, drop-dead handsome as, as, as Saul was. But that wasn't the issue. The issue for God was, what's the character? What's the heart? Does he have a passion for God? Okay? Let's focus on some of the major episodes of David's life. Let's just talk about these stories for a moment. First story. Okay? David and Goliath. Now, the first couple of nights I talked about moralistic preaching and moralistic teaching one thing we've got to avoid is morality tales, okay? Because you can very easily, especially when you teach children, the story of David and Goliath can be a morality tale, i.e., you've got a bunch of giants in your life. Be like David and slay those giants and use those stones and, and, and be strong like David and slay the giants in your life. What happens if your stones don't hit the target? Or what happens if the giant doesn't fall? What do you do then? Can you be like David? Are you called to be like David? Or are you called to trust in the Savior who's the second David who actually fought the battle for you and gives you his righteousness and never leaves you or forsakes you and gives you the power to be able to handle whatever comes your way? You understand the difference? We could teach David and Goliath. We could say that the point of David and Goliath is to be like David and kill your giants. Who's the, star of the, who's the star of the story in that case? It's David and me, okay? Ultimately, it's me because I need to be like David. The better gospel way of preaching it is trust in the God of David who kills your giants for you most clearly through Jesus when he died on the cross and rose again. He conquered death, hell, Satan, and he gives you his righteousness. So even on your best days when you're doing everything right and your worst days when you're doing everything wrong, God's love for you is constant, based upon the merits of Christ. That's a gospel way of presenting the story as opposed to a moral way. If you preach the moral way, how can this be frustrating if you just go away from the story of David alive and say, be like David? How can that be frustrating? What's that going to lead you to? What if I'm never like David? <laughs> or what if I'm really good, like David? And you kind of strut around and say, Man, I can I can I'm getting good at killing these giants. Give me another slingshot. You either get inflated with pride. Or you're like, there's no way I can do this, and you get inflated, or you get deflated with, with, with um, guilt. So let's look at the story. This is not primarily a story about courage and effort, but about the awesome power of a life built around both bold, bold faith in the Lord. This is the longest narrative account of any David stories relating to a single battle with a foreign enemy. It's long. Look at how many verses. Look how long just chapter 17 is in your Bible. It takes up almost two pages. 58 verses. There are more quotations in this story. Here's an interesting tidbit. And it's there on purpose. And you guys may have to help me understand why it's there. I understand why it's there, but let's, let's talk about this. The longest quotation in First and 2 Samuel is placed on the lips of a foreigner, Goliath. Why? Why? Why would there be more time given in a speech to a foreigner? So, words would be like a tower or an obstacle against God that God comes in and destroys. Okay, that's a good way of looking at it. (laughs) Yeah, this big inflated speech that God can come in and destroy. I really don't know except for to say that, remember, God's word is the most important thing in the Bible. And so it could just be a, a very... Outwardly saying thing, God's very word is attacked here. It's not just a giant out there standing in the middle of a field. What the giant says is a very attack upon the word of God, the character of God. And so why this speech is so long is to amplify the fact that God's very word is under attack. So let's look here at that that statement. Um, 17, 8, and 9. Let's look at his his speech here. (laughs) He stood and you can leave that back door open. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay, and if you keep going on down and read the account where David actually meets Goliath, you find out that he even says more words there. So let's keep going down. Literally, Goliath, the word literally means a man between the two. What they would often do, have you guys ever seen that movie? um, Oh, I just just lost it. Troy. Troy. You ever seen the movie Troy with Brad Pitt? Um, they've got the two armies that come out. Do the two armies fight against each other or do they send their biggest men to fight out each other? That's kind of what they did in ancient Middle East is instead of having thousands of people killed, let's just have two guys killed and then whatever the winner is, we'll just you know say that that's the winner. So they get their biggest guy... Against their other biggest guy, and they'll fight a death match, and then whichever one wins, that the, the kings may have a peace treaty, and or they may send more guys out. So that's what's going on. Goliath is a man between the two. Uh, the NIV translates "champion." Um, really, this is the only time this phrase is used in the Old Testament. It, it apparently, referring to an individual who fought to the death in representative battle. So instead of taking all your troops into battle to get everybody killed, let's just have two guys. You know, have cage match, and see who see who wins. There was no cage, but okay. (laughs) Goliath was nine foot nine, almost the height of a basketball goal, tall dude. He was sheathed in metal. Now that's important because he's from the Philistines and in Philistia, the area of the Philistines, they were known for their metal making, metallurgy. And so they had superior armor than the Israelites did. The weapons David used. What did he use? Sticks and stones may break... My okay. Sticks and stones were not products of human artifice, but organic and natural. Stuff that God made in nature. Not stuff that man made. To contrast the human-made instruments of warfare the Philistines manufactured, David would conquer these man-made weapons with divine weapons. What does Paul say? I think it's in 2 Corinthians. We demolish any um, stronghold... Um, it's the whole idea that God is his victor through just normal means. It's not through man-made power. It's not through man-made weaponry. It's through what God has provided. Um, and so there's that, that, that metaphor there. Any individual guilty of blasphemy according to the law, even a foreigner, must be stoned. So if you blaspheme the Lord God, you had to be stoned. Why do you think David picked up a stone and didn't go out there and like you know, fight him with a knife? It's a a theological issue. This man is a blasphemer. He deserves to be stoned, and so he's going down the way God says he's going down, by stoning. One stone, though. For David as well as for all Israel, armed conflict was fundamentally a religious event. Let's look and see um, what David says. Um. Let's just pick up in verse 41. You guys know the story. I mean, he put the armor and all that stuff. Verse 41, And the Philistine moved forward and came near David, and with the shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. What's David's attitude here? It's all about God's glory. God's fighting, God's doing it, God's weaponry. The reason we're doing this is so the whole world knows that God is the Lord. You're out here blaspheming the one true God That's bad enough, but the the point of this battle here is not so I can just kill you. The point is so that everyone knows that you've blasphemed the holy name of God, and God will not allow His name to be blasphemed. God will not share His glory with another. God is a jealous God. Do we have a problem with that? We shouldn't, that God is a jealous God for His own glory. He will not share His glory with another. Okay? And we know the story. Let's just keep reading. Um. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slugged it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Now, that's a miracle right there because think of all the metal armor he's got. And where does it hit? Forehead. Now, normally, if you got hit by the forehead, how would you fall? In the Hebrew it says he fell forward. Now, why is he falling forward? One way or another, this guy's gonna bow down before the one true God. Even in his death, God gets the upper hand that this guy's gonna, this blasphemer is gonna bow down before the living God. So an amazing thing. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and with the stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And we know what happens because David becomes this great man in Israel. And you go down and look at verse um, 7 of chapter 18. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have described to David ten thousands, and me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. A little, little challenge for you. If, you. if you read through this 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, go through and circle how many times it says the Lord was with David. A lot. The Lord was with David. The Lord was with David. The same thing we saw in Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. It's just interesting to see that that, that even though he did some ungodly things, God was still with him and he obeyed the Lord. Okay, Saul's death. I mean, we could talk about a bunch of other stories and there's a lot of stuff we could talk about. But let's, for 10 minutes here, let's talk about, there's a masterful structure of interweaving two stories at once. Kind of like Eli and Hannah. You've got the death of Saul on the battlefield, and you've got David on the battlefield fighting two battles in this back-to-back thing. Uh, this, these two, D- David whoops. David is fighting the Amalekites, and Saul is defeated by the Philistines. David returns to Ziklag after routing the Amalekites, and hears word of Saul's death. These three chapters, 30, 31, and chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, are woven together in almost a movie fashion. And then you have David's lament for Saul and for Jonathan. And so even at the end of their life, even even though Saul tried to kill David, David still mourned him. Why? Because he was the king. And in God's mind, he was the anointed man that was was the leader. And even though he was wicked, David still respected the, the authority structure that God had placed there. Okay. Um, I want to go ahead and stop right there because next we're going to kind of get into Second Samuel, where David's anointed and, and, and things like that, and, and um, we will probably just stop there. It's probably a good stopping place. And besides that, it's getting kind of warm in here. So, are there any final questions, or observations, or things that you want some clarification? There's probably a lot we could do in Samuel. It's just like I said, we're never going to get through the survey of the Old Testament unless. Yes, Robert. Uh, chapter one. You had um, it said Eli was sitting in the temple sitting. There wasn't normally chairs in the, temple, the tabernacle temple because of, they were constantly working. and He was sitting in the temple rather than yeah. There. That's a good point, point. and let's that's a good point, Robert. Let's go back. I forgot to say something too. Um, the death of Eli is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, go back to verse or go back to chapter four. Um, a man of Benjamin, verse twelve. Chapter four. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he cried, What's this up, Roy? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety eight years old, and his eyes were so set that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from battle. I fled from thy battle today. And he said, how did it get to my, my son? On and on and on. The main thing you find out is that in verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now, we don't really have time to talk about You can go back and read how the whole ark of the covenant was stolen, and then what happened? They took it into the... Um, was it Dagon the the, the big um, statue and the statue falls and the people get hemorrhoids and rats and you can go back and read the story of the the, everybody gets you know struck with hemorrhoids like get this out of here because we don't want hemorrhoids and then they they come back and all that kind of stuff very interesting reading you thought judges was kind of gross well you know there's a story about hemorrhoids in the bible um just got to add that in um but I don't know if I answered your question, Robert. The point is, is that he wasn't doing his priestly duty by doing the things he was supposed to be doing. He was sitting down and oh, resting. Yeah, I have a I had an observation. Is, an obs- you had an observation? Okay. Yes? The other thing that I think is amazing is that there was disobedience of Saul, but there was disobedience of the people in the killing of God. And yet, later on, in Esther, Haman is an agagite. Hmm. And so... Here it is over that massive period of time, still God has some kind of retribution somewhere. Mm-hmm. There. But... Go back to Acts for just a moment because I'm just thinking about what we read earlier. Um, Acts chapter 13. It's just interesting how Paul summarizes that whole story. Notice how Paul says it in verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. So they asked for a king. God gave it to them. God removed him. But then it says God raised up David to be their king. And he says, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Um, As we get to next week, the big question we've got to ask is, how does the gospel work itself into the life of David, who's a man after God's own heart, yet did all these wicked things? How can we say that? Is it an excuse to go send your heart out? Because, you know, you, you can look at the story of David and say, you know what? That's a really cool deal. I mean, I can go have sex with another man's wife, have him killed, And basically, I can just be forgiven and be a man after God's own heart. Is that the gospel? How can that be? I mean, you can can see how you can abuse that story. Yes, Jeff. Maybe you'll get into this next week, but but why is David so revered among the Jews? I mean, like even maybe above like Moses and Abraham. I mean, he's pretty important. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah, Abraham, Moses, and David are the top three guys. You know, if you had a Mount Rushmore, I don't know who the fourth guy would be on the Mount Rushmore. Take your pick, maybe Joseph, you know. Um, but for the Jews, the, the fact is, all throughout their history, they've always been marginalized. Even during the time of Christ, they were in occupied Palestine. They never had a king. After exile, and, and, and they got taken into exile, they never had a king. And so they're waiting for this David that was the greatest king of Israel. It was their glory days to come back in Jesus' day to take them out of Roman occupation to set up camp and kick the Romans out and and set up camp in Jerusalem and rule. And so for the Jews, you know, they've always, all throughout history, they've been marginalized. I mean, even since 1948, they didn't even have their own nation. They came back to be a nation. They're always looking for the second David to come to be that ruler that's going to make things right. And what they don't understand is that in God's economy, there is the second David, Jesus, who came to make things right, but did he use force? No, he came as a a servant to be served, to die as a ransom for many. He did not set up this military rule, but he was meek and humble, and he died. Okay, second coming of Jesus, how is he going to come? He's going to come as king, power, on a white horse, He's going to be, you know, if you want to read some scary verses, read Revelation. Talking about the threshing the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God and their souls will cry out day and night as the smoke of their body goes up forever from hell. I mean, it's, and the scary thing about it is that those of us in heaven are saying hallelujah. I mean, that's what it says. It's um, some scary stuff there in Revelation. But Jesus will come back as the ultimate king of kings. And So I don't know if, I think to answer your question, Jeff, I think they're, they're always looking at that, that David is the ultimate king during Israel's glory days and that, that where's that next king, that next person that's going to set Israel up to be what it, the golden years. Does that, does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. yeah. All right, that's probably a good place to stop. So let's pray and then um, we'll come back and we'll probably do Second Samuel and then we'll move into Kings and we're going to kind of talk a little bit about how we get into the prophets with Elijah and things like that. Um, all right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that... Um, lord i I love the story of Samuel just a little boy that had the childlike faith just to obey your word and um, Lord how many times it says he was in your presence he was ministering to you he was serving you Lord and I'm thankful for the example we have of Samuel that um, he was a man that that shot straight and and was able to do what you called him to do and then we see Saul Lord who was a disobedient king and, and Lord and then we see David and through all of this Lord Jesus it's pointing us to you as the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords and Lord Jesus, we want to not be like David or be like Samuel, but we want to put our trust in you because you are the ultimate uh, Savior and and Lord who saves us from our sins and gives us your your grace and righteousness. So thank you for that. Bring us back safely next week. We pray this in Jesus' name.